Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 26, which is a return to the key witnesses in Dealey Plaza. And in episode 26 and 27, we will specifically cover those witnesses who saw a gunman and, in some cases, more than one person in the window of the Texas School Book Depository. Now, in a previous episode, we already covered the one and only person, Howard Brennan, who was in Dealey Plaza that day and who claims to have been able to identify Oswald as the lone gunman up in the shooter's nest. As we have already covered, the government expected Brennan to be their star witness, but because of issues with his testimony, well, his star status faded quickly. But that doesn't mean his testimony was not relevant or somewhat compelling. Yes, there was some Swiss cheese elements to it, but again, he eventually came around to strongly proclaiming that he believed it was Oswald in the window. Like just about everything in the JFK assassination story, there is no lack of important but rather imperfect witnesses to help fill the void. We'll get to the story of those witnesses in a moment, but first, I just want to tell you a little bit about the last couple of weeks. Some of you may have been wondering why I haven't published a new episode of the podcast in that time frame. Well, to tell you the truth, it's been chock full of important personal events and some travel that just precluded production of episodes until I returned to the recording studio of the South. Now, everyone that knows me knows that I like to use in my own pattern of speech, euphemisms, slang, and various colloquialisms, ah, the grand panjandrum, so to speak. I have some close friends, mostly colleagues from my working days, who actually get a real kick out of things when I use these words or phrases in a sentence, and especially when I very proudly add a new one to the inventory, which, by the way, I very proudly report is inventoried by them. Okay, I'll give you an example. For instance, when a person says something particularly incredulous, well, I might look at them and say, that dog don't hunt. Or maybe I would say, in the South, that dog don't hunt. You get the picture. Okay, that was a bit of a mini-wander, but I'll finish the rest of the story of what I was doing these past few weeks. First, I was watching the download meter continue its steady climb upward as it counts the number of episodes you all are watching of JFK, The Enduring Secret. It's happening as all of you are catching up to me and the production, and so many more of you are now current through episode 25. I can tell by the volume counts on the episodes and the fact that the overall volume of folks who have listened to the entire series is actually growing. I'm happy to report that we passed the 10,000 download threshold for the entire podcast series. I'm really proud of that, and it really deserves more than a thanks to all of you who are listening, as you all are giving our podcast life by continuing to give me feedback and encouraging me to continue. Now, speaking of continuing, a number of you may have thought that I had a Forrest Gump moment in the middle of the Arizona desert. 
For those of you who've seen the movie, you know what I mean. Remember, run, Forrest, run. He ran all across this nation back and forth. How many times? Then, at some moment, in the middle of the Arizona desert, looking like some homeless creature with a beard that could have been used to scrub the chrome on a good set of Corvette wheels, well, it was at that moment that Forrest looked up and said that he had run enough. That season of life was over, and it was a great run. No pun intended. Well, for those of you that are listening now, I can assure you the last two weeks were not a Forrest Gump moment for me. They were just life putting a few things in priority. We were about ready to come roaring back with more episodes. I can assure you of that. So here's the rest of the story. We traveled back to Pittsburgh to be with our son Austin as he graduated from Pitt Law School and as he turns next to studying for the Pennsylvania Bar Exam, which he will be taking in late July. To say that I am proud of him is more than an understatement. But he will have just a few nanoseconds to celebrate before he goes right back to work. A great truth in life that can be found right in the scriptures of the Bible, and I guess probably in the great books of other religions as well, is a solemn covenant. It goes like this. To whom much is given, much is required. He is now a Juris Doctor, a J.D., Much will be required of him, particularly in this next generation, as it meets the challenges of the 21st century. Frankly, we've taken for granted the rule of law in this country, and we have done that for a long time. And despite its imperfections, and there are many, our system of justice is still the envy of the world. It's now his generation's requirement to move it along and to make it better than it was at the moment that it was handed to them. Remember the words of our Constitution, in order to form a more perfect union. Our founding fathers didn't say perfect union, they said a more perfect union. Those were carefully chosen words and a more elegant way of describing continuous improvement. Whether perfection is obtainable is less important than whether we are seeking it and getting better. You see, we will always at times be frustrated with where things are at and how quickly things are moving or changing in life. That is true for each of us on an individual scale, as well as how things are for us as a society. It's a constant battle between push and patience. And some of the circles that I run in I believe they would call that, well, what it takes to deal with that. I think they might call it grace. Where push meets patience and where there is just enough grace, well, I believe that is where we find peace. I wish all of you peace, and I'll pray for that on my end. Our trip to Pittsburgh was chock full of beautiful moments with old friends and colleagues all of them near and dear to my heart. Too many to mention them all, but I will mention one. I got a chance to have dinner again with several of my Highmark and Allegheny Health Network colleagues. James Rohrbaugh, who is the chief financial officer of the Allegheny Health Network, was there. As I retired from that same post almost two years ago now, James took over the reins just in time to experience the bronking buck effects of COVID-19 on the finances of a health system. 
If you want to turn gray, or better yet, lose all your hair, take a job like that, right at a moment like that. It's been one of the most challenging times in U.S. history for hospitals. Well, James was ready. I'd like to think I had a little bit of something to do with that. That is, his getting ready phase for such a challenge. But that would just be ego on my part. James is an avid follower of the podcast, and at dinner, he gave me a wonderful gift. I have an April birthday, and James is an incredibly thoughtful guy who seems to remember important dates better than most people. This was an especially notable one in that it was my 60th. James gave me a book. It was a book written by Cyril Wecht. More on that book in another episode. There is more to that story. This gift was timely because I was attempting to have lunch with Dr. Wecht in Pittsburgh the week that I was there, but the scheduling of that proved to be challenging. So hopefully next time on that front. This was a tough book to track down and certainly an important one to add to my growing JFK collection. And James has done just that himself. Despite a very busy schedule, he tracked it down himself. That's the kind of personal attention that James gives people. And it's the kind of person in general that he is. James is a foodie, too, with a fondness for cheesecake. Not only does he like to consume it, but more importantly, he's a world-class cheesecake baker. He's been known to show up at work on the day of someone's birthday, or just a good day to pick everybody else's spirits up, to show up with a couple of homemade cheesecakes. Cheesecakes that would have won more than just a blue ribbon if they had entered the competition at a local fair. Cheesecakes that would not only hold their own in a national competition, but I think might win. No joke, they are that good. James is another example of a very good person in an important position in healthcare in America. A person who is true to the mission and who cares most about the people and the patients he is serving and the community he lives in and strives to make a better place. There were other close friends and colleagues at dinner that night, and each of them deserves their own special attention from me, and they will get it. But today's podcast is for James. I dedicate today's podcast to you, James Rohrbaugh. As you sit there and watch the Zapruder film, you see people lining the streets of Houston and Elm, single file, what a sight, all of them so compliant and so civically obedient. People exercising their civic privilege and pride, in most cases to watch the President of the United States and his beautiful wife ride by in their limousine. This may sound strange, but every time I see that scene in the film, I think of the scene near the end of the children's story, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, where the whole town comes out to hold hands and sing a Christmas carol, despite the fact that all of their Christmas gifts have been stolen by the Grinch. For some reason, I guess my mind thinks that that's just sort of a fitting analogy for the way that all those men and women were all juxtaposition in Dealey Plaza that day. In their own passion play of sorts, carried on in the Christmas season. 
How hopelessly ironic their civic compliance and pride would be when compared to the shocking events that would take place just moments later. There were hundreds of witnesses in Dealey Plaza that day. I guess in some ways it's astonishing that really only a handful saw something active in the window of the Texas School Book Depository, and even less saw or would comment on other events in the plaza that happened outside of that window. Well, I guess in some ways that makes this part of the storytelling a little bit easier for me. For me, these witnesses fall categorically into several buckets. Regarding those who saw someone in the book depository windows, there is just a curious handful that saw a person with a gun in the window right around the moment the shots took place. And in an even more singular circumstance, the case where someone saw a man with a gun in that window almost 15 minutes before the shots took place. We'll talk about all those over the course of these couple of episodes. Still yet, there are a couple of folks who saw more than one person in that window when they also saw someone with a gun. These witnesses, where they saw a person and not just the gun, all furnished general descriptions of people they saw, but nobody outside of the story you've already heard that was told by Walter Brennan himself, well, nobody could positively identify the shooter in the window. They were just too far away or just too afraid to say. My guess is that most of them were just too far away. Well, here we go. Let's start with the story of the press crews that day that were part of the motorcade itself. The group of them all riding together were a large portion of the folks that saw something. So let's tell you their story. Tom Dillard was a 49-year-old photojournalist. He was the chief photographer at the Dallas Morning News, and he also did some aviation writing. But his primary job was to head up the photographic department at the newspaper. He'd been with the Dallas News since 1947, and before that, he had started at the tender age of 15 back in 1925 with the Star-Telegram, which was another paper in town at the time. Like the other favored and designated members of the press, he would gather into the press car at Love Field and fall in line in the motorcade. Jim Underwood was in the car, too, along with a few others, including Bob Jackson, Malcolm Couch, and James Darnell from Channel 5. Underwood, at the time, was an announcer for KLRD-TV, and he also doubled as a cameraman for the station. That was not so uncommon in those days. He was acting as a cameraman that day, which is why he was in the car, too, with the other photographers. As Dillard remembers it, they were in about the sixth car back, and they were, as he understood it, supposed to have been quite a bit closer to the presidential limousine that day. You see, this group was assigned as the primary photographic car, which, as Tom explains, is normally a truck which precedes the president and then certain representatives of the photographic press ride with the truck. In this case, because it was a motorcade, they all ended up in a convertible, all of them hoping to take photographs of a spot news nature. Because they ended up being placed so far back in the car lineup at number six car or so for almost the whole parade, the whole trip into town, and until they got to Dealey Plaza, well, Dillard could only distinguish the president's car on a few occasions. Basically, at those spots where they encountered high rises in the ground, a hill, so to speak, 
When they reached a hill, Dillard could see downward toward the cars ahead of them. For a brief moment in those interludes, Dillard and the others in the car could see what was happening ahead of them. But people were sitting on the backs of the open convertibles, and their positions pretty much blocked the press's direct view of the president from their vantage point, which was, as I said, six or seven cars back. Dillard would describe it and say that, all in all, we had a very, very poor view of the president's car at any given time from the time the parade started. Look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, I don't think, but at the end of the day, isn't it somewhat odd that the original intention was to put them, all these men, with cameras, movie cameras and still cameras, relatively close to the president's limousine, and then all of a sudden, as this entire thing is assembled at Love Field, they're put at the rear of the bus, so to speak. Well, I'm just saying. Dillard recalls that he was in the right front seat of the press car. As they made the right turn onto Houston off of Maine, Dillard heard that same explosion and then blurted out, my God, they've thrown a torpedo. Yes, I know. That seems like an odd thing to say. And Dillard would later tell the Warren Commission he was not sure why he chose those exact words. But after he heard the crack of the next shot, he knew it was something more serious, and Dillard now knew it was, as he describes, heavy rifle fire. He heard three shots that day, and he thought they were all equally spaced shots. As he recalls it, their car wasn't very far down on Houston after the turn onto Maine that the first shot rang out. After the third shot, Dillard commented very soberly and without confirmation, they killed him. And Dillard again would later recount to the Warren Commission that he wasn't sure why he said just that at that moment. It probably was just an instinct. Dillard would recount that while they couldn't see the president, they had an absolutely perfect view of the school book depository right at the moment that the shots rang out from their position in that open car, and he recounted Bob Jackson's statement at that very moment. You have to remember that because they were six or seven cars back, the president's limousine had already made the left turn and was proceeding on Elm while they were still on Houston and had not yet made the left turn to get in behind the motorcade. Jackson was in the back seat of the convertible and he saw a rifle and he yelled out, there's a rifle barrel up there. Dillard would recall that he had his camera ready and Jackson responded further saying, it's in that open window. But for Dillard, there were many open windows that day at the school book depository. Jackson would be more specific and again say there's a rifle barrel up there going on to elaborate that it was the second from the top window in the right-hand side. Dillard immediately swung his camera to the spot and quickly recognized that there were two other figures. Well, two other people in a window below the window where the gun had been seen. He had a 100-millimeter lens on a 35-millimeter camera that day, and he also had a second camera ready to go with a wide-angle lens. Dillard refocused his energies, and he took just two pictures in that moment. They were of the window of that depository. 
Dillard had been waiting for a good shot, and both still cameras were hung around his neck, and both were being held in his hands when the moment finally came to capture something memorable with the camera that day. But why this? The whole way there, they were in a bad position and there wasn't much to photograph, and of course, that made him, as a news photographer, rather tense particularly when you're covering such an important topic as the president or any affair of that sort. Dillard would later explain that all the photographers were watching for every available possibility, given the limited opportunity that they had in the car for most of the ride. Up to that point, the most interesting thing that Dillard had a chance to shoot was a moment during the parade where the president passed by a group of citizens who had put up a big sign that said, Mr. President, stop and shake hands with us. Kennedy did just that, stopping his car at Lemon and Loma Alta. Dillard had jumped out of the car, which was pretty easy to do because it was a convertible with the top down, and he tried to run and get pictures of that moment. But by the time he got closer to the president's limousine, the parade had started up again, and he was unable to get a picture, a picture that would have undoubtedly become the last picture taken of President Kennedy personally greeting a citizen of this country. The two Dillard photographs taken of the sixth floor window right at the time of the shooting would become some of the most important photos taken in Dealey Plaza that day and important assassination evidence. They were taken just about as the press car reached the corner of Elm and Houston. Dillard did not see the rifle barrel as Jackson had. What he did see was two men in the windows, the arched windows, he thought, but he wasn't sure. That he saw them right as he was taking that picture. He was sure it was more than one person, but he couldn't be sure if it was perhaps three. But unfortunately, he did not see anyone in that sixth floor window. We know from our previous episodes that he saw the three depository employees who were eating lunch that day on the fifth floor. As the press car slowed down and made the left turn onto Elm, like others, he now saw the chaos that was beginning to develop in the plaza. And he saw people lying on the ground down the hill now in that area known as the Grassy Knoll. And this is where Dillard decided to jump out of the car, he and several others. He took a quick picture of the motorcade as it sped under the triple underpass, and he then took about two minutes to assess the circumstance and realized that he needed to follow the president. Right at that moment, there was another car of dignitaries in a Chevrolet convertible, and Dillard waved them down, explaining to them what he had just seen and asking them for a ride. He proceeded to literally hold on to the back of the car, which was then beginning to take off at a rather high speed. Diller would go on to explain that he was a good shot and believed that he might qualify as someone with a great deal of expertise related to guns, and that he had a great number of high-powered rifles. He also shot those rifles a great deal, so he was familiar with the noise that they made. He would articulate that they were getting sort of a reverberation in that part of the plaza, which made it difficult to pinpoint the actual direction of the shots. But in his view, they were coming directly ahead of him, which was the school book depository. 
He also smelled gunpowder when the car moved up to the corner of Houston and Elm. He would tell the Warren Commission that he very definitely smelled it, and he would recall to them that he and Bob Jackson talked about it right at that moment. That is, the smoke. As the excitement cleared, he got his film developed immediately. That is, shortly after he came back from the hospital, which is where he had gone once he hitched a ride on the speeding car. It was at that point in the examination of those two pictures that he had taken, looking at those pictures, well, that reinforced in his own mind that there were three shots and that the same rifle fired all three shots. Dillard would tell the Warren Commission that he had secured the two negatives of those pictures and they were retained at the Dallas Morning News office in a box kept locked in the managing editor's office. Like Jackson, he was in the plaza for a brief few minutes, but he didn't recall seeing anyone leave the depository building. Those two pictures became important Warren Commission exhibits. On the surface, they really don't seem to show much. And maybe that's why, out of all the pictures, these two got featured in a prominent way by the Warren Commission. Years later, though, after the Commission's work was done, and upon closer photographic examination using more modern techniques, well, what would be revealed are differences in the two pictures that were taken moments apart. Nuanced differences in the images that were captured both in the sniper's window and in the window next to the sniper's window. These nuances between the two photo snaps suggests that there was movement Movement in the window located next to the shooter's nest. Movement that then suggests the existence of a second individual standing relatively close to the shooter at the moment the shots were taken. These conclusions are not without some controversy, but clearly they are strong evidence that there was a second person on the floor at the same time those shots were taken. Yes, the Dillard photos grew in importance in understanding the history of what happened that day. While Dillard didn't see a gunman in the window, Bob Jackson did. Jackson was one of the two newsmen in the convertible that day to see a rifle in the window. He, too, had two cameras that day, and he was perched up on the back of the convertible. You know, the way we have all seen people sit on the back of a convertible during a parade. He was there with his feet resting firmly on the back seat and his second camera firmly tucked between his two feet for safekeeping. Unlike Tom Dillard, who was also in the convertible with him, Jackson thought they were probably seventh or eighth behind the lead car in the car lineup. This group of newsmen in the car were in a relaxed mood as they headed toward the corner of Maine and Houston. They knew that the motorcade was almost over and soon they would be at the trademark working the political lunch that was about to start. Jackson had just finished shooting a roll of film in the one camera and had removed the roll. As they got to the corner of Houston and Maine, he tossed the roll of film to another reporter who was waiting there for it, on the sidelines right at that designated point to receive the film and courier it off for processing. That was how they did it in those days. <laughs> Life is easier now in some ways, isn't it? 
just as Jackson tossed the roll of film, that now familiar gust of wind appeared on Houston Street, and that roll of film got away from the reporter who was supposed to catch it. All the newsmen in the convertible seemed to be watching this happen, as the man on the other end had to scramble to find the roll of film on the ground. One of the reporters in the convertible even took a picture of that scene, and then it wasn't but just a moment or two later when they found themselves just about halfway down between Maine and Elm on Houston. Jackson was a National Guardsman, and he quickly realized there were shots being fired. He heard three shots distinctly, and within a second or two, maybe three seconds past the last shot, he happened to look up, straight up right where the sixth floor window was at the depository. And there he could see the short barrel of a gun being withdrawn into the shadows of the sixth floor window. He would also validate what we've heard in our earlier episodes about the two young African-American men who were on the fifth floor right below. He described the moment at which the shots had been fired and he could see those two men leaning out of the two windows below where the shooter was seen and looking up, straight up at the sixth floor window where the barrel of the gun had just been. Unfortunately, Jackson was one more witness that couldn't positively identify the shooter, or even say that he saw a shooter. He just saw the gun, and the gun only, and really only parts of it. He did see clearly that the gun was pointed downward from the window straight and to the west, basically pointed in the direction of Elm Street toward where the presidential limousine was and generally in the direction of the triple underpass. Pretty convincing testimony that there was a shooter there with a gun pointed right at the motorcade, right at the presidential limousine. Jackson also saw the boxes that were stacked up behind the window. The boxes that were stacked in a high row, creating a backdrop that, in his estimation, was about five feet tall and made from a series of boxes that were stacked up to be high enough to hide a person. Interestingly, the sworn testimony taken from many of these various witnesses was done by various Warren Commission attorneys, and they all asked a different set of questions. There was no consistency in the general interrogation questions being posed to this batch of witnesses. And as a result, Jackson was never asked to describe whether the rifle had a scope on it or not. In other interrogations done by other attorneys, that became almost an obsession in the questioning, but not in the case of questions that were asked Jackson. Jackson would go on to describe the all-too-familiar scene of those immediate moments after the shots rang out. As they made the left turn onto Elm, he would, like the others in the car, and for a fleeting moment, see the last visual of the presidential limousine before it made its way underneath the triple underpass. He would see crying mothers and fathers hovering over their children on the ground. He would see the policeman on the motorcycle as he was charging up the hill, and he like the others in the car, had to make a split decision as to whether to get out right there in the plaza and check the scene out, or stay in the car. Jackson chose to stay in the car. He was an important witness, for sure. He was one of the few who actually saw a gun in the window, and for now, there would at least be a validation that shots certainly came from the sixth floor of the school book depository. 
Another interesting point came in his testimony to the Warren Commission when it came to where the shots sounded like they may have come from. It was somewhat of a different story from what we heard from Tom Dillard, who was in the same car. Jackson described the shots as coming from the north and the west. At the moment the shots were fired, his convertible and its position in the motorcade happened to be halfway down Houston Street between Maine and Elm. North and west to him at that moment, as he would describe it and elaborate on it, was in the direction to the west of the school book depository building, somewhere closer to the grassy knoll or the triple underpass. Remember, he was a member of the National Guard, and like so many men in his day, he was very familiar with and knew how to shoot a rifle. Jackson may have been the lucky one, so to speak, seeing the gun, but he stared upward enough without looking through the camera lens and ended up not taking any pictures of the depository building at that moment. Those were captured by Tom Dillard, as we just heard. There is one more newsman in this coterie of newsmen that followed in the cars behind. One more that we want to say something about as far as being a witness and having a significant role in this play. His name is Malcolm Couch, and we'll tell his story now. Malcolm was a part-time news cameraman for WFAA-TV in Dallas. He was perched next to Robert Jackson on the back of that convertible. These were all mostly young men and good men. Malcolm's personal story is particularly appealing in that way, and so I'll include a little here. He had started to work for the TV station back in 1955 for a few years, and then he headed off to college to go full-time. In 1958, he came back to Dallas, and he entered the Dallas Seminary. He wanted to be an ordained minister, and he was seeking a master's in theology degree. He parlayed his early work as a cameraman, and he got himself a job at a place called Kites and Herndon, which was a film studio there in Dallas. He also worked for a year at Camp Elhart as an executive director of this Christian camp there in Dallas. But eventually, he would make his way back to WFAA-TV in March of 1962. Malcolm had been back at the TV station for just about a year and a half at the time of the assassination. On that fateful day, like the other newsmen in the car, he was assigned to cover the arrival of the president at the airport and to ride in the motorcade through town and then continue the coverage as the president was scheduled to go to lunch and then to head back to and take off from Love Field at the end of the day. He was assigned as a cameraman, but unlike Tom Dillard and Robert Jackson, he was shooting movie film only and taking no still pictures that day. He arrived promptly at Love Field that morning for his assignment and began taking movie pictures as soon as he got there. To him, it felt like a quick transition from Love Field to the motorcade, and as soon as the presidential entourage got into position, Couch assumed his place in the rear of the press car alongside Robert Jackson. They went out through the airport parkway to Mockingbird Lane, and then soon they were on Turtle Creek and ultimately headed for the main part of town. Malcolm recalled all the motorcycle cops on duty that day and how distinct and impressive looking they were. They show up on the couch film as well. They seemed to be jockeying for position, and that was particularly notable to couch. From time to time, each of the various motorcycles would fade back and forth, letting another one of the motorcycle cops take the lead. 
Couch ended up, ironically, having some camera issues that day, but he still managed to shoot some footage. And he felt some sense of relief as they reached Maine and Houston, a sense that the parade was now ending. Pretty much everyone was relaxed by now in the convertible, but only for a moment more. Well, that first shot rang out and Malcolm thought it was a backfire at first, possibly from one of those same motorcycles. When the shots rang out, Malcolm had just turned to his right, and then he heard Jackson proclaim that there was a rifle in a window of the depository. Couch quickly glanced up to the school book depository windows, and he felt like it was the sixth or seventh floor that he was looking at, and he, too, saw about the last foot of a rifle. And it was a rifle that, at that very moment, was being drawn back into the window inside. He didn't see anything more than a steel barrel of a rifle, and he couldn't see whether it had a telescopic scope on it or not, and he didn't see any of the stock of the rifle. And, as you might be anticipating, he didn't see the person who fired the rifle either, and he saw no shots fired. Admittedly, he says it's hard to understand whether it was the top window or one floor down. The archways on those windows, as he proclaimed, make it difficult to discern, and at the time, he thought it had come from the top floor. One thing was for certain. The window was open. How much? Well, he wasn't sure, but it was certainly open and perhaps all the way open, but it was just an impression Couch had. In Couch's case, he didn't notice any boxes in the window either. As a juror, you should, once more, take stock of the major variations in reported facts from eyewitness observers. These boxes are another good example. Couch did recall seeing other people in other windows. Roughly speaking, probably the third or fourth floor in the middle of the south side of the building. That was probably our Fab Four ladies mentioned in a previous episode. Particularly, Couch remembers seeing one Negro boy with a white t-shirt on who was climbing out of one of those windows and looking up to the windows above him. Obviously, he too was referring to the same African-American men that were depository employees, our witnesses from a previous episode. Couch recalls that the convertible they were all in was probably about 25 feet before you make the turn from Houston on the Elm the point at which the convertible was facing almost directly in front of the school book depository. And it was at this moment that Couch saw the rifle being withdrawn. Couch kept filming as they entered the plaza. To this day, the film that Couch made is an important one. It's certainly not the Zapruder film, but it documents important elements of the parade that day. Being six or seven cars back, the film consisted mostly of a chronicle of the crowds along the motorcade. Occasionally, the camera would point straight ahead and document the back of the heads of the group occupying the vehicle in front of them, all hanging on the back of the convertible just as they were doing, and all of them ending up being a suitable shield to prevent anyone from seeing anything beyond the car that was just in front of them until they reached Dealey Plaza. When Couch got to Dealey Plaza, the movies he took of the witnesses scrambling in Dealey Plaza, some of them laying flat on the ground in sheer horror, and 
now the iconic footage of the motorcycle policeman at the foot of the grassy knoll trying to stand his motorcycle up. These are all precious recordings of this moment in history. There are only a handful like it, and this one is certainly unique. Well, it's getting late, and I meandered a lot today, so it's time to take a pause and eat a sandwich. But we just heard the first of a series of Dealey Plaza witnesses who saw a rifle in the sixth floor right at the moment of the assassination. We'll continue in episode 27 with some progressively more interesting witnesses who were in the plaza and saw some even more interesting things in the windows of the sixth floor of the depository. Thank you for listening to episode 26 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. <laughs>